Africa rise and shine Africa tsoza Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 11925 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet Channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu. In studio with Anne Musa, Tabisolohoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories, on Africa rise and shine at the Sawa. Kenyan doctors lose court appeal to block deployment of Cuban doctors. BRICS ministers discuss ways of mitigating the effects of climate change. And events to mark World Refugee Day get underway. In economics news, state-owned South African airline may not pay staff salaries this month. And in sports news, Spain to play Iran today in World Cup Group B match. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. At least 18 people have been killed by flooding in Ivory Coast's capital, Abidjan, after intense rainfall. The downpour, which started on Monday, continued until Tuesday morning. The government says 18 people died in a provisional toll posted on its website. Another 115 have been rescued and taken to shelters. Torrential rains in May 1996 killed 28 people in Abidjan. South Sudanese President Salva Kiir is expected to meet his rival Rohik Machan in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, as part of talks to try and negotiate an end to a five-year-long civil year-long civil war. The ethnically charged conflict has killed tens of thousands of people and repeatedly brought large parts of South Sudan's population to the brink of famine. A series of ceasefires and pacts have failed. The meeting on South Sudan will be held under the auspices of the Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed with the aim of bridging gaps between Kir and Machan. Increasing fraud, maladministration and corruption in both the private and public health sectors pose a threat to universal health coverage globally, including to South Africa's national health insurance. Law enforcement agencies and health experts across Southern Africa and the United States have been meeting at the 19th Annual Conference of the Board of Healthcare Funders at Sun City Resort in South Africa's Northwest Province to discuss the issue. South Africa's head of the Special Investigating Unit, Andy Mutibe, says they are hot on the heels of those at the forefront committing these crimes. If we do not deal with this corruption in the healthcare sector, it's going to continue to erode the resources that we so need. On the private side, if we don't deal effectively with corruption and fraud, it's going to deplete the capital adequacy and some of the schemes or most of the schemes will go under. As the world commemorates World Refugee Day, the World Health Organization's regional office for the Eastern Humanitarian, Mediterranean rather, is calling for renewed support for the protection and well-being of refugees and other displaced populations and the right to seek health services with dignity without discrimination and without undergoing financial hardship. The Eastern Mediterranean region is the largest originator of refugees globally, with more than half of the world's refugees fleeing from Afghanistan, Somalia, Sudan and Syria. Meanwhile, momentum is growing in the United States Congress to pass new legislation that would end the policy of separating migrant children from their parents. Leading Republicans say when he 
visited Capitol Hill last night, President Donald Trump indicated his willingness to sign any legislation passed by Congress. The BBC's David Willis reports. The question is, is Donald Trump amenable to legislation that just tackles this one issue or is he holding out, as he has up to now, for a package of comprehensive immigration reform, the sort of package that also includes a provision, a financial provision, for that wall along the border with Mexico, that uh, key topic uh, of his on the campaign trail. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. beset by so much human suffering, poverty, and deprivation. It is in your hands to make of our world a better one for all. From July 18, raise your hand and make a dedicated effort to keep helping others in any way you can. Make every day a Mandela Day. It is in your hands to make a difference. Today in 1990, Nelson Mandela receives a hero's welcome in New York. Mandela, who was deputy president of the African National Congress at the time, was received at the City Hall after a traditional parade up Lower Broadway. Let's listen to this clip from CBS. This is the CBS Evening News. Dan Rather reporting. Good evening. Nelson Mandela got a rousing welcome from the city of New York today as he began a 10-day tour across the United States. The former longtime political prisoner will address Congress and the United Nations and he'll be received at the White House. This is the high point of Mandela's world trip seeking money and political support for the fight against apartheid in South Africa. With a mixture of triumph and humility, Mandela arrived at John F. Kennedy Airport. to be greeted by hugs and handshakes and promises of help. We must continue the use of sanctions and every other reasonable and effective device we can find until apartheid is only a terrible memory. Mandela was pleased, urging the leaders to keep up sanctions against South Africa and bringing a message of hope. Today we can say with confidence that we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. On the drive through one of the poorest sections of Brooklyn and later at a high school, it was clear that Mandela is a hero to millions in America, too. And it was clear that he was having a good time. At New York City Hall, Mandela received the key to the city and gave a promise. Apartheid is doomed. South Africa shall be free. And that's Nelson Mandela speaking there in New York on this day in 1990 at the start of his U.S. visit. Let us all unite and celebrate together. This is indeed a joyous night. We are delighted by the overwhelming support for the African National Congress. To the people of South Africa and the world, this is indeed a joyous night for the human spirit. You help and apartheid. This year, 2018, marks 100 years since the birth of South Africa's first democratically elected president, Nelson Kholisatha Mandela. Join Channel Africa, South Africa's international public service radio station, as we celebrate a centenary of the life and times of Madiba. Join us in a year-long broadcast campaign in honor of Nelson Mandela's legacy through a variety of informative radio programs. Channel Africa, celebrating 100 years of Nelson Mandela 
from an African perspective. Let us Kenyan doctors have lost their appeal to the Labour Court after attempting to block the deployment of Cuban doctors across Kenya. About 100 Cuban specialist doctors are in Kenya following an agreement between the Cuban and Kenyan governments. The Kenyan Doctors Union has opposed the hiring of foreign doctors, saying there are 171 local specialists without jobs. James Shimangula reports. This is how Judge of Kenya's Labour Court, Onesmas Macau, concluded his remarks when he ruled that Cuban medical doctors should work in the country. It is my finding. Petition is dismissed because it fell short of threshold. Dismissed for lack of sufficient evidence. The Kenyan Medical Association, which filed the Kenyan doctor's petition, was represented by Alphonse Muema, who made it clear that the association, known in short as KMA, was not against the Cuban doctors working in the country. KMA, my client, was not against the Cuban doctors coming to work here. They were just challenging the process, which was undertaken by the relevant ministry and the government. Because KMA also would not be against the local doctors going to work outside. It's just the process. To the lay person, uh, I would not say that the lay person, the local person has lost, no. But to the doctors, they, of course, have not had their day in court. This means that uh, the doctors, Cuban doctors, are to work in Kenya now. Tell our listeners well so that they understand. Of course, so far, unless there is another, the superior court stops the process, it will mean the Cuban doctors can proceed to work. Three of the Kenyan doctors were separately represented by a renowned Nairobi lawyer, Professor Kiyama Wangai, who expounded on the dismissal of the case by the judge of the Labour Court. The case being dismissed means that the, the Cubans can uh, now work. I think that is what it means. Uh, but there were various findings, of course, that uh, uh, various provisions of the Constitution were not followed. But the main reason that uh, the case has been dismissed is because it falls short of certain constitutional threshold. In particular, that uh, evidence was not presented to the court. Now, the, this evidence would never have been available to the petitioners because it is with the government. So that there was no way that the petitioner would get this evidence. So that uh, technically we can say the dismissal is by a technicality, not by uh, in terms of uh, uh, it. Uh, uh, have been, been uh, considered properly. Ordinary Kenyans have expressed mixed comments on the presence of Cuban doctors in Kenya. Medicine is a very specialized field and um, I think we can benefit from our own doctors and doctors from elsewhere. No, it's not really actual, it's necessary because I think Kenyan uh, doctors are qualified and the reason as to why they are being uh, in, uh, brought from outside, I don't see the reason for real, I don't see it. And I think it's a high time that you, uh, doctors take an action because they have that right, they cannot be educated and stay without a job. I think it's their duty to save life here in Kenya. In our doctors, or with our doctors, I think they are not experienced, and yet <laughs> they have money so much that nothing they do which will fit the, an ordinary citizen. So most of the time we find ourselves dying for nothing. And that is to say it's better when the foreigners come and show us how we can work. Yeah, they know how to work. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Leader of South Africa's main opposition party, DA Musi Maimani, has reiterated his view on the detrimental effects that the expropriation of land without compensation will have on South Africa's economy and the country's constitution. Maimani was speaking in Lufering in Soweto, where the party handed over title deeds to community members. Maimani says unused land currently owned by government should be distributed equally and people should be allowed to work the land. Abongile Dumako reports. As the debate over the expropriation of land without compensation continues in parliament, many are still unsure how the process will unfold. 
This was evident during DA leader Musi Maimane's visit to Luferang in Soweto, where he handed over title deeds. Residents who have been living here for the past eight years say the handing over of these documents has given them some sense of relief. It has been 105 years since the Native Land Act was passed in 1913. The act disposed black people of their land and denied them the right to own or buy it. Maimane says land distribution must be implemented in accordance to the law and in a corruption-free way. When you arrive here at an urban community, the fact of the matter is that let us give land ownership. The DA's policy on this regard is that if we, if government builds houses, it must give that house to that person with title already. So that that person, if they so choose to do whatever they want to do with that land, they can. So that when the government wants to expropriate land, let's assume they wanted to build a road through Lefari for public good. They can compensate the people. Whereas without title, who is there to be compensated? My manager says the ongoing debate on land redistribution without compensation in the Gauteng legislature won't have an intended result. The ANC, led by PEC member Lebohang Maile in the province, has proposed a motion to debate land expropriation currently with the processes in the National Assembly. The EFF is expected to vote with the ANC on the matter, but my manager says this won't have any effect on the ongoing debate. What we have to do is say within the constitution and the framework, Let's bring to court what the adequate compensation is where an injustice has taken place. So where that caucus will resolve, obviously, is to protect the constitution of the republic. The NC can talk with double fork and say today they expropriate without compensation, tomorrow they'll say this. is irrelevant. Now parliament is currently reviewing section 25 of the constitution to seek solutions on how it will deal with land expropriation without compensation. And the official opposition has voiced its concerns, saying expropriation of land should be done within the framework of the current constitution and must not be corrupt. I'm Tumago in Johannesburg. South Africa's Minister of Agriculture, Senzeni Zulkwana, says the expropriation of land without compensation needs to take place sooner rather than later. Zulkwana and his Western Cape Province counterpart, Alan Wind, hosted BRICS delegates at the Ellensburg Agricultural College in Stellenbosch to showcase what the Institute can offer ahead of the BRICS Summit in Johannesburg next month. Chris Mabuya reports. The issue of land came up during interactions with the college students. They asked Zogwana about opportunities and whether there will be land for future farmers graduating from the college. SRC chairperson and plant production final year student, Dane Fredericks. What happens regarding when you have finished your studies? We know in order to farm you need land and that is one of the crucial things. Not just the land, the opportunities, the mentorship. Where do we go? Is the opportunities available? Is the land available? Is the support? Is the funds? So that is all the challenges that we are facing. Zogwana says the issue of land is emotional to both the dispossessed and those who have it, but says it's something that needs to be done. There is a program, and I want the students to know that the state is at work to ensure that land availability is acquired. Preferable in a way that all South Africans are comfortable with. South Africa has solved a number of difficult questions before. This is one of them. As a government, we have decided this year that we'll put about 1,000 agricultural unemployed graduates in a program where they can work with farmers, where they can be able to have stipends. It's a pain at this time to find that. There are students who are unemployed who don't know what to do after qualification. Western Cape MEC for Agriculture, Alan Windy, says partnership with the private sector is also crucial. I personally believe that if we are to be serious about land reform, we need to up the budget. In this province, we've worked out that if we want to reach just the National Development Plan targets, we need in this province 2 billion rand a year to be able to achieve those targets. But I also believe that we've got to build key partnerships. So the students, the private sector and government come together to find those solutions. Windy says the agricultural private sector has already played an important role in funding land reform processes. He says individuals in a number of farms in the province don't have title deeds and that government should find a solution to that. I'm Chris Mabuya in Cape Town.
Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zora. Africa, amuka na unai. It's 8.20 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Three countries protect half of the world's new refugees. Turkey, Bangladesh and Uganda alone received the majority of all new refugees last year. The Norwegian Refugee Council is concerned by the utter collapse in global responsibility sharing for displaced people. The NRC notes that rich nations are building walls against families fleeing war. Meanwhile, there is less aid available for people in conflict zones. As we mark World Refugee Day today, we are now joined on the line by the NRC's Taril Skastian to reflect more on the plight of the world's vulnerable people. Taril, thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Thank you. Now... What is going wrong? The international uh, responsibility sharing is collapsing, really. We see that uh, some countries are doing their share, like Turkey, like Bangladesh and Uganda. They are receiving uh, vulnerable people who are fleeing from war and persecution. Uh, But the international community is not providing these countries with sufficient support. In Uganda, for example, only... About 7% of the money needed for UNM partners to provide sufficient support for the refugees has been uh, provided by the international community so far. This is not good enough, and uh, we need all countries to help take their share of the responsibilities to meet uh, the large refugee crisis we are, we are in. The, record, the figure now is record high. 68.5 million people are displaced from their homes. Terrell, we saw an issue, for instance, I think uh, it was last week, where a boat uh, could not anchor and had to be redirected. And there was an issue with Spain and, and, and Malta got involved. What, what is the problem? Is it a problem of finances? It is, a, is it a problem of space? What exactly is, is going wrong? And why are the big um, countries or the rich nations not giving what they promised to give? I think it's a problem of willingness, really. Uh, yes, there are uh, many people displaced at the moment, but if these people, uh, if the responsibility to provide these people with the necessary protection were shared more evenly among countries, we would be able to deal with it. It's not necessarily a crisis. It didn't need to be a big crisis. Uh, the international community could handle it in a better way if everyone took their share of responsibility. When we saw this vessel, Aquarius, I think this was a grotesque example of how people uh, are just becoming pieces in a political game. Uh, and it's, um, it's the refugees, really, who are, who are losing on this, uh, in this race to the bottom in international politics. Are there any le- lessons that uh, have been learned from uh, especially the situation that uh, um, was dealt with uh, last week where, um, as I mentioned, Italy and Malta refusing to rescue migrants or giving safety port and forcing Spain to step in? What lessons can be learned going forward with regards to um, the issue of refugees? I think it, in this situation, it was good to see that uh, Spain stepped in, but it shows also that this is not a solution. We cannot have, we need to have good international laws uh, that everyone uh, play by, uh, and we need to have a better responsibility sharing so that countries follow these international laws and see these laws as fair. Uh, and um, in 2016, world leaders were gathering in New York, uh, and they agreed to do better responsibility sharing for to handle the refugee situation. Uh, so far, unfortunately, uh, they have not stepped up. 
Now, just speaking of the U.S. and the mention of the U.S., currently on the news, we're seeing a lot of, uh, um, you know, migrants or, or refugees from whether Mexico or Cuba um, having to be separated from their children with, the, with the, the laws that are now being implemented, which the U.S. says have always been in place with regards to policy um, on, on immigrants. The separation of families, children being put in one, um, uh, you know, uh, section of the country or one building and the parents in another. What is the world going to do about that if a rich nation like the U.S. is also inflicting what uh, and and encroaching on on refugees, human rights and now with them uh, withdrawing from the Human Rights Council? It's everything seems to be falling apart. It's heartbreaking, really. Yes, to see the to see the situation in the U.S. now, and and uh, it is a very important principle when people are fleeing that families should be kept together. Uh, this is important in our work in refugee uh, camps all over the world. Families, mothers, fathers, and children need to be able to stay together. This is the best way to ensure that they are properly protected. Uh, I think when we see this, all these new barriers, uh, legal uh, uh, or different laws, uh, making it harder and harder for refugees to seek protection, um, it shows um, in Europe and in the U.S., then this is also uh, sending a signal to other countries uh, in the rest of the world. Uh, and it, And in the end, you hear people in other countries saying, well, if the U.S. is doing this, uh, why can't we also... Uh, put up more barriers towards the refugees. And if we, if all countries are doing this, we, we end up in a race to the bottom where we see that the, the refugees are the ones who are losing. Uh, and I think at this stage where we are have record figures of uh, refugees worldwide, uh, we really need to protect the international legal system that protects these refugees. Now, what is the, in terms of a viable global response to the crisis of refugees? Because um, most of them, it's an issue of, um, you know, uh, war zones in their countries, conflict, um, you know, hunger. And what is the NRC's call to action, especially on this World Refugee Day? One of the most important things we can do uh, is to ensure that there is enough funding for these crises. Uh, last year, only about 60% of the funding needed to respond to the humanitarian crisis worldwide were received. Uh, it's not enough. This means that uh, organizations have to cut back on food rations. It means families are not provided with a, a sufficient mode of um, of shelter, of, uh, and a lot of children who are displaced are also losing their right to an education. This is not uh, a solution we, in the long term. We need to step up and ensure that they pro- are provided with the necessary support. Uh, in addition, there is, of course, a need to get in place a much better international diplomacy, because in the end, we need to find solutions to these, uh, these crises that are driving people from their homes. In terms of that, um, and looking at uh, the pledges that are made by the different uh, nations that can afford to to um, give um, for for such crisis in the world, how do you ensure that countries do um, stick to their pledge and do give the funding that they promised they would? Is there a way of doing that, or is it going to be a, situ- a continuous cycle of every year? Pledges are made and there's uh, uh, literally half or, or less than half of the pledges that, do, that are sent through to, to um, aid agencies or um, the NRC, for instance. What needs to be done to get it right? Uh, I think uh, there needs to be a discussion about how the international community better can share the responsibility for this. Uh, and this discussion is ongoing. Uh, so let's hope that state leaders are uh, finding uh, concrete ways to deal with this. But also, um, yeah, like you said, uh, currently it's, uh, it's one thing is that some countries are not living up to the pledges. But uh, another issue is also that they are not pledging enough. They are not 
promising the amount that is needed. Uh, and uh, even if, yes, the money provided is increasing, the needs are increasing much more quickly. Uh, and this is, uh, this is a large problem, and we need to, um, and that's why it's, it's, yes, it's about money. We need more money to provide a sufficient humanitarian assistance, but it's also a need to find political solutions to this crisis. Tarell, thank you so much for joining us. We'll leave it there for now. And all the best. And hopefully, um, you know, we, you, you as a NRC will be able to, to get all the pledges that are put forward and more pledges in terms of the amounts are um, sent through to NRC and other age agencies. Thank you so much for joining us. That's uh, Tarell Skarsten of the Norwegian Refugee Council on the line from Norway. Up next, our headlines. Up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. In the headlines, South African President Cyril Ramaphosa welcomes the decision by South Sudanese opposition leader Rahik Machar to resume participation at the peace talks. At least 18 people have been killed by flooding in Ivory Coast's capital, Abidjan, after intense rainfall. And momentum is growing in the U.S. Congress to pass new legislation that would end the policy of separating migrant children from their parents. Those are the stories making headlines. Swiss chocolate wouldn't be Swiss chocolate without African cocoa. <laughs> you know, it's funny when you think about it that way because you realize just how important Africa is to the global economy. And as long as we are deemed to be inferior by the community out there, nothing's ever going to change. I believe it's one of the uh, ancient Greek philosophers who said that when we teach, we'll learn twice. Hello, Africa. Welcome to 1000 African Voices on Channel Africa. 1000 African Voices every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. with repeats on Sundays between 10 and 11 as well as on Monday morning between 3 and 4 Central African Time. 1,000 African Voices with me, Awurengwi C on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, broadcasting from an African perspective. It's 8.32 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. The inaugural Impact Africa Social Entrepreneurship Summit hosted by Ashoka and British Council South Africa gets underway in Johannesburg today. The summit will bring together hundreds of change makers from the healthcare, women empowerment, education and digital innovation sphere, amongst others. It aims to inspire, connect and accelerate solutions to Africa's most pressing challenges and to promote social entrepreneurship as a vessel for Africa's development. To discuss this further, we are now joined on the line by Executive Director of Ashoka Africa, Pape Samba. Pape, thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Thank you for having me. Now, this is the inaugural Impact Africa Social Entrepreneurship Summit. Tell us more about the event. Thank you. So, uh, this is the inaugural Impact Africa Summit. This is the first time Africa and the British Council come together to really accelerate impact in Africa. So, the idea is to create social innovation solutions around Africa and uh, social innovation solutions around the world and showcase them to um, different organizations, companies, change makers, social innovators around the world. Because we believe that, you know, social social innovators are the change agents of uh, this new world, this new changing world where, you know, we create more problems than solutions. And the only way that organizations and institutions can be successful is by coming up with new ideas and new ideas in a sense that's faster than the way we create problems. So we brought 150 social innovators, 100 uh, African social innovators, and 150 non-African social innovators for three days to share their success stories, their failures, their innovation, so we can learn from each other. 
and apply that into this new changing world where uh, everything is about repetition. We believe that we need to anticipate this world with coming up with new ideas and because repetition only creates the same problems. So that's why we're doing this first uh, inaugural Impact Africa to bring sons of Africa to Impact Africa. Now, each of the days have a, dif- a different theme. Can you tell us more about the different themes? Yes. So uh, we decided that the first day pretty much is to bring people to, to connect, to know each other, to work with each other, to get to know each other. The second day is all about collaboration. You know, how can we collaborate? How can we co-create solutions together? And the third day is how do you impact Africa? How do you map? Uh, once we connect and collaborate, how can we come up with the solutions that will impact Africa? So we want to make it a really practical conference, uh, the one that's not like the conferences that happen generally where we just talk. We want to be able to come up with solutions and uh, create or address those social challenges that Africa is facing the most pressing ones. That's why the first day is all about connecting the second collaboration and the third to accelerate social impact in Africa. What are you hoping to achieve with this summit, this inaugural summit? Yeah, like we said, it's first the learning. How can we share learning uh, among each other? How can we put Africa on the global map of uh, addressing social problems? Because like you know, um, Africa is seen as a country where there's only challenges. But if you really look at uh, the data, the data shows that Africa is the future of the world in terms of uh, population growth, in terms of uh, market, in terms of innovation. So it's not much. It's a continent that's not really saturated with anything, and uh, everything is open. So what we're hoping to achieve is to be able to showcase those, uh, first to create those solutions, but showcase to the world so people can take it to their respective countries and also take it to the world. So we want to position Africa as the continent really that's where social innovation are flourishing, where new ideas are coming up, where people are, have impact to share and learn from each other. That's what we're hoping to achieve by really empowering and championing these new African uh, social innovators and turn them into change makers. Now, I know this is a, an inaugural summit and it is being hosted here in Johannesburg in South Africa. Any plans? How often are you going to be hosting um, a summit, the summit? Is it going to be uh, an annual summit or uh, biannual? And is it only going to be in Johannesburg or are you going to move around the continent? Yeah, it would be an annual summit and it would be moving around the continent. So the idea is that really, like I said, once we curate all the social innovators around Africa, we set them and select them. We uh, champion them by giving them access to, to, to financial support, giving them access to capacity, access to uh, new connection, and bring them into a new community. We want to challenge them to come together to co-create uh, solutions to Africa's most pressing uh, problems. And then from there, we convene. We have an annual convening, which is this summit, where we go around Africa uh, to different countries, uh, give them opportunity also to meet with uh, innovators, African innovators from the world, give them opportunity to learn about this, this new solution. So we'll be going around the world, uh, and but we'll be making sure that every African country is involved and Africa is leading this conversation from African voices, but inviting also the rest of the world to be part of it. Papi, thank you so much for joining us. We'll leave it there for now, and all the best for the summit. Thank you so much. That was the executive director of Ashoka Africa, Pape Samb, joining us on the line. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Ministers from the BRICS countries are holding a four-day meeting to find ways of mitigating the effect of climate change at the Kruger National Park in South Africa's Mpumalanga province. Delegates from the five member states, which include Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa, are exchanging ideas on the eighth BRICS Ministers of Agriculture and Agrarian Development. Eric Lubisi has more. According to statistics, South Africa's exports to BRICS countries marginally increased from 123 billion rand in 2011 to 188 billion in 2016. In the same period, imports from these countries also increased from 115 billion rand to 230 billion. In 2015, 
the total intra-brics trade amounted to 306 trillion rand. Agriculture is seen as an important area of trade among these emerging economies. MEC for Agriculture and Land Development in Pumalanga Vushongwe says the meeting is aimed at promoting cooperation among these countries on addressing climate change and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Shongwe says ensuring food security for member states is critical. We are sharing ideas with all the BRICS countries and neighboring countries, the smart way of dealing with this climate change. And uh, we, as different countries, South Africa is assigned with agricultural responsibilities. But other countries of BRICS are dealing with technical issues, you know, and all other necessary model that tries to deal with issues of climate, because climate is killing our agriculture. The Department of Forestry and Fisheries says the effect of climate change on agriculture has an impact on the country's GDP. According to the Director General at the Department of Forest and Fisheries, Mike Mlengana, agriculture boosted the national GDP in the last quarter. Our economy was pulled by agriculture. The last quarter, the fourth quarter, was pulled by agriculture from its uh, depression. So clearly agriculture is very significant, but agriculture must take into account that it depends on the variabilities of weather. Weather is a major challenge. So it makes sense that as we develop our strategies, we begin to think about what does this climate mean? If it is too cold, what does it mean? If there is too much frost, what does it mean? Experts are also expected to present the findings of research conducted on ways to overcome the impact of climate change in the agriculture sector. The delegates will also visit small-scale agricultural projects in the neighboring communities. Next month, South Africa will host a 10th BRICS summit in Sentin, Gauteng. I'm Eric Lubesi in the Kruka National Park. Are you interested in generating business leads, networking, forming new partnerships and igniting growth opportunities? Then you will be interested in the Vision 2030 Summit. Themed Skills, Economic Growth and Investment, the summit takes place from the 20th to the 21st of June at Emperor's Palace in Ekruleni, South Africa. Speakers include Bonang Mohale, Tsidiso Matuna, Nomalungalogina, Sai Mamabolo, Kanyisele Koyama, and Risenga Malulega. Space is limited, but there is still time to book seats now at vision2030.co.za. That's vision2030.co.za. Or you can join Channel Africa on both days when we will be broadcasting live from the Vision 2030 Summit. Channel Africa bringing you the African perspective. The late South African prisoner Nelson Mandela's love for children will stay etched forever in the memory of those who had the privilege of working for and serving him. This is one of themes in a compilation of memories by Madiba staff who have penned a new book titled I Remember Nelson Mandela. The Cape Town launch of the book by the Nelson Mandela Foundation took place at the center of the book last night. Kamel Lochrenberg, Roberts reports. Close to 300 pages of the fondest encounters with Nelson Mandela. I Remember Nelson Mandela is a book which is seen as a collection of remembrance from those who worked with, for and beside the country's first democratic president. More than 100 individuals who served the statesman have penned their fondest memories about the man who touched so many lives across the world. Bodyguard to Mandela for more than a decade, Conroy Herodine, says it was his love for children that he will remember most. His happiest place was his hometown, Kuno. And that's where he really switched off and enjoyed himself amongst his people. Especially during Christmas times with the Christmas parties. and He would sit at that gate on Christmas Day and greet thousands of kids. And that moment, look, we were all away from home during Christmas time. I missed Christmas with my own family for many, many years. But that moment really made it worth the while to be away from your family. 
former personal assistant for both Mandela and his wife, Kwasa Michelle, and co-editor of the book, Vimla Naidu, says there are several memories she holds dear while working for Mandela. There was a human side to Madiba. I mean, people know him as a leader, as president. Um, but this shows you a side of Madiba that we were privileged enough to witness every day. Um, we saw him as the father, grandfather, husband, uh, a leader, but someone who cared so deeply for the people that worked for him as well. Mandela's granddaughter, Indaleka Mandela, also attended the launch and thanked the staff for the dedication while serving the former president. Well, you were really privileged to spend these intimate moments with him and you must always cherish them because we envied you. At some, sometimes we had this love-hate relationship with you guys because, but you were doing your job. But for us, we saw you as the gatekeepers of us not being able to access him. As well as Mandela's longtime friend and anti-apartheid activist, the late Ahmed Kathrada, also contributed to the book. I am Carmel Lochenberg-Roberts in Cape Town. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhoko. Good morning. South African Express Airline says it cannot confirm reports that its workers may not get paid come the end of this month. This follows a statement by the Federation of Unions of South Africa stating that the airline's acting CEO, Matsietsi Mukholo, informed staff that salaries might not be paid this month. SA Express's spokesperson, Rifula Masimullah, explains their position. As you know, since we were grounded on the 24th of May, the airline has not been in a position to generate uh, revenue. So we've been very open and transparent with regards to the communication to staff. However, no, there hasn't been a notice to staff regarding the, the non-payment of salary. What did happen was that we had a, a proactive engagement with both staff and labor, just sensitizing them, obviously, to all the challenges facing the airline, as well as the, the potential risks pertaining to the payment of salary. It's a burning priority for us. Um, however, I cannot in this current juncture deny and or confirm that. South Africa's National Union of Mine Workers, a chief negotiator at the power utility, Helen Dietal, has accused Eskom of negotiating in bad faith. Workers downed tools last week, which led to load shedding with Eskom, accusing its employees of uh, sabotaging the power grid. Eskom has now made an offer of 4.7% after initially making no offer at all. Trade unions will engage with the South Africa's power utility on the wage offer after negotiations restarted on Tuesday. Dietal says that she hopes for the best outcome in the remaining two days. This is dependent on a number of variables. As we go through the power stations one by one, we will see the extent of the work that needs to be done there. But we have already started to bring coal into our power stations, especially the six that we had previously indicated were running low in terms of coal stockpiles. So it's a gradual process. It will be a very slow and rough process, but... Africa's bargaining big cities will play an increasingly central role in the continent's growth and development, driven largely by Africa's rapid urbanization. However, the development of smaller, secondary cities is also important and presents nascent opportunities. There were some of the key messages to come out of the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors in 2018, which took place recently in Johannesburg. The fourth annual edition of Rex Summit Africa attracted over 220 local and international built environment professionals as well as government and business leaders, academics and media. A Ghanaian economist, Lord Mensah, has downplayed concerns that Ghana's drive towards financial inclusion may be affected if banks merge with or acquire each other in a bid to meet the minimum capital requirement by December. Speaking to Joy Business, Mensah described this potential challenge as one that can be surmounted using technology or taking advantage of the digital age within the banking landscape. He described banking today as one that has moved beyond the physical banking halls 
or what some call brick and motor banking to one that leverages on digital technology to deliver services. The Bank of Botswana has maintained the bank rate at 5% to continuing its push to boost economic activity through accommodative interest rates. At that level, the bank rate is the lowest on record, according to the Central Bank's published data, which dates back to 2004. The bank rate is the benchmark against which all interest rates, such as lending and deposit rates, are pegged in the market. For consumers, a review of the bank rate means either cheaper or more expensive loans and loan repayments. At this point, the US dollar is trading at 1020 Botswana Pula. It's at 991 in Zambia. In Brex currencies, the US dollar is trading at 374 Brazilian real. At 63.76 Russian ruble and at 68.10 Indian rupee. 6.47 Chinese yuan and at 13.77 to the South African rand. It's also trading at 75 pence to the British pound, 86 cents to the euro. Gold on $1,273, platinum $858 an ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at $75.30 a barrel. From an African perspective. Lions of Taranga. Oh, yes, the Lions, Lions of Taranga. In fact, when you say the Lions of Taranga, you remind me in 2002 when the commentators were like singing the, yeah, the, 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 the Lions of Taranga throughout their, 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 their matches. Mm. And it goes something like, uh, the Lions of Taranga have eaten again. After their game, they would say something <laughs> like that. So it's like they're starting to eat now. They're like ready to go all the way to the quarterfinals. Watching that game was, was, was quite thrilling, you know? Well, yeah, uh, we were all like on tender hooks, like crossing our fingers that they should do good and, and, and at least raise this uh, African flag very high. And we saw a red, a red card yesterday as well uh, in the Japan, uh, was it Japan? Colombia game. Colombia game. Yeah. Yeah, that's this. This World Cup is is actually quite hectic, especially yeah. now with the with the, uh, the the is it the fourth referee with the video? Yeah, the VAR. VAR, yes. Yeah, you would call it. Uh, no, the fourth referee would be the commissioner who stands next to the line. Okay, so this but is. But those a, are the other ones that stand in the stands there. So let's say the fifth referee. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, but there's a lot of history that has been made. Japan winning for the first time against a South American team, and uh, well, with Senegal. We were not surprised because they they went on to the to to, to the quarterfinals in two thousand and two. Mm. But what we're saying in South Africa, you remember in twenty ten, mm-hmm. South Africans used to back uh, Ghana. We used to call them Bagana Bagana, Bagana after they Bagana, went on yes. at mm. home. Now we are, we were saying Senegal could have been us. You know, they qualified <laughs> in our group, so should have, could have, might have. Shoulda, woulda, woulda. <laughs> but I still say, going back to the Japan issue, countries like Japan, China, the USA. Um, the v- very developed countries with the right coach yeah because they have the funds the money those teams in any sport will eventually do well at some point it, it's something that we as africans don't want to learn they're not the football countries no they're not all of them they're but not. what they did they they put a lot of money and effort into their development mm. and now it's paying and you can see the fruits because apart from from football there's also the u.s playing rugby yeah who would have thought but because they've got the money for development that yeah. sport is going to grow in that country everything they do they put more effort they they, they develop it and they, they they nurture it very well okay mario's crying about time give us an update update this hour we begin with football news happening today former manchester united and australia keeper mark bosnick says spain should accept the occasional error from goalkeeper david de gea no no goalkeeper and no player are immune from mistakes no human being is immune from mistakes what's the important thing is that you get back up again 
And, and you're right, so he does that, make the saves that no one else can. Okay, if, if I've got a goalkeeper in my team and I'm a manager, and I know, I know he makes saves that no other goalkeeper can, I'll accept the odd error. It's when it becomes a little bit more, you know, con, con, consistent that you start thinking to yourself, well, hang on a minute, you know, you've got to weigh up, you know, risk over reward. And Senegal became the first African team to reach the points and win a game at the 2018 FIFA World Cup when they beat Poland 2-1 at the Spartak Moscow Stadium in Moscow, Russia last night. And Vedil Mbude was at a match venue and got the travelling fans reacting to the result. Definitely, it's a great pride for us, not just for Senegal, but for whole Africa, because we're all together, so today it's Senegal that's winning, tomorrow there's Morocco playing, we hope they win as well, and all of us, five teams, we have to go as far as we can, very important. Once we score the second one, because after the, after the first one we're not very confident, since Poland still has Lewandowski, so he can score pretty much any, any time. And that's always a threat. So even at the end of the game, when it was 2-1, we were still worried. But thankfully, it just all went fine. The Code of Arbitration for Sport, CAS, says it had opened a probe into Casa Simea's challenge of controversial new IAAF rules on testosterone occurring in female athletes. CAS says it had registered a request for arbitration filed by the South African two-time Olympic gold medalist against the International Association of Athletics Federation IAAF eligibility regulation for female classification athletes with differences of sex development that are due to come into effect on the 1st of November this year. And finally, Andy Murray has come back after almost a year out with a hip injury, ended in a narrow defeat by Nick Carrigos in the FIFA 3 Championship at the Queens. The best way for me to get fit is to play matches and to get over any sort of mental obstacles of the hip and doubting things. Today was in many ways a big step forward for me in comparison to what I have been doing, but obviously I would have liked to have got some more matches here. That's your Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa. Kenyan doctors lose court appeal to block a deployment of Cuban doctors. And events to mark World Refugee Day get underway. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuto Ramagadza and Khumuto Mopulani, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org, WhatsApp on 277-6300-3327 or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of our for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa is Salif Keta with Manju. Papa, I did